0: right, the elementary kids are going to head downstairs. Um, Go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. While you're turning there, I'm going to ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Father, um, my heart is full this morning. Being able to stand here this morning and teach your word um, is such a privilege, but to do it with... so many friends in the room, um, people I've known for years, people I've only known for, for months but still think very highly of and uh, appreciate and respect them, and um, Lord, just um, thank you for the privilege that it is to be part of uh, the body of Christ, and um, Lord, we know that that's messy a lot of times, but um, we uh, we appreciate all the the privileges and honors that are involved, and um, we want to experience the the ideal of what your local church should be, and even what our gathering this morning should be, so we ask that um, you bless our time together as we open your word this morning. Um, Thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Acts chapter 12, let's uh, go down to verse 20. We're going to come back. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. um, But I'd like to read a few verses here and that kind of give us a good starting point. Okay, so Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an or- oration to them. And the people were shouting, "The voice of a god, and not of a man." Uh, let's let's play a little name that tune this morning. However, I'm not going to give you the the tune. Um, I'm going to give you some um, some people or some groups that have covered. This song, and let's see if you can guess it. Let me get to at least three groups before some smart aleck gives the right answer right away. Okay? Um, All right. So, uh, Tom Jones, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Manson. Any guesses? No? Good guess. What? Sweet dreams. Good guess. Let me give you one more. This You might get it on this one. Johnny Cash. What? No. Um, the Blind Alabama Boys. So it is a song that is religious in nature. I haven't heard it, so I'll just go ahead and tell you. God's going to cut you down. God's going to cut you down. Originally recorded in 1948 by a a group, and then it was covered by all these famous famous artists since. And there's a little bit of, uh, because if I were to read some of the lyrics here, it says, uh, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down go tell that long-tongued liar, go tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell them that God's going to cut them down. Now, the, the essence of this song is that eventually all are held accountable by, by God. Now, this is not the primary message that we bring to people, um, that God's going to cut you down, have a nice day. Um, it's not the primary message, but nonetheless, it is true. God is a just God. We are all going to be accountable to him, uh, stand before him, and evildoers are not going to get away with doing evil. Now, there's some a bit of irony. Like It's not a shock that some of these names that I mentioned sang this song, but it is quite surprising to see on this list Marilyn Manson sang this this song. And, of course, there's, I think, irony involved here because... Marilyn Manson has a reputation for basically being anti-Christ. And, um, and so there's a, a bit of, of maybe a tone of mockery or a tone of irony um, in, in covering that song. But the, this is a true reality that we're all going to be held accountable to God, even, even those that, that mock him. Or uh, trample on his territory, which is exactly what is happening here with these f- few verses that I read about Herod. Now, we're going to work our way back up to that. Um, but let's start in verse 1. Main idea this morning, here in chapter 12, is God exercises his divine prerogatives. God exercises his divine prerogatives. And through this text, we're going to see what those divine prerogatives are, okay? First one is prayer. Like, prayer is a part of God's plan. It's a part of God's providence. And it is a it is something that he has worked into how we relate to him and how creation responds to him, all right? So, first divine prerogative that God exercises is that of, of prayer, okay? Verse 1, about that time, so just... To reference the end of chapter 11 you had uh, a Gentile church predominantly Gentile church being formed in Antioch and they are sending uh, aid to the the church back in Jerusalem uh, in order to help them out because a um, a global or region-wide famine is coming and Um, So there is a concern, even amongst the early believers, there's a concern for one another as part of the the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The the word here for violent hands, it means evil hands. He's got evil intentions. Um, He's not messing around here. Now, what, what we'll see through this chapter is there's this thread of Herod versus God. Um, this is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa II is going to show up at the end of the book of Acts. But this is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod the Great who, um, who eliminated infants, in Bethlehem, who had the uh, the temple remodeled? It is that Herod the Great that he is the grandson of. Now, his father, Agrippa's father, um, was suspected of treachery years before this, and was actually killed by his own by his grandfather. So, Herod the Great killed uh, Aristobulus. Um, And then a different Herod reigned, and while that was going on, Agrippa is in Rome and becomes buddies with the the Caesars there and ends up later in life getting this appointment over uh, the area of Palestine. Um, And in fact, Agrippa's father was terminated by his grandfather when he was three years old. But this, this Herod, Herod Agrippa had a good relationship with the Jews. He mostly respected their traditions, and he was partially Jewish himself, coming from his, his mother's side. All right, verse, verse 2, it says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, there are several different James in, in the New Testament. There's James, the half-brother of John, jesus our lord um who becomes a key central leader in the jerusalem church this is not that james this is james the brother of john the apostle um the one who wrote the gospel of john and uh revelation first second and third john it is his brother part of the sons of of thunder uh the one that was in the inner circle with christ um, at, mo- at certain times, there was this inner circle that Jesus shared with Peter, James, and John. This is that James who is martyred. Uh, it says that he is um, he's killed with the sword. Probably decapitation. Could just be being run through, but it was pr- pretty much a um, a trend for for Rome, and even a puppet king like Herod. To have people be beheaded. Verse 3, it says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So, what we're seeing here, here's Herod. Like I said, he's a puppet king for Rome, he's a partial Jew but he is this figurehead, not just for Rome, but he's also a figurehead for the Jews himself. We've already seen their rejection of Christ through the Gospels, and now their persecution of the early church, and so this is confirming for uh, Luke's readers here that Israel's rejection of of Christ is once again confirmed, Um, that they're not changing their mind, and the church in Jerusalem is going through a difficult time. There's this famine, and now there's this heavy, uh, significant persecution where it's not just the believers in general that are being persecuted, but they're going after the leadership of the early church. James has already been killed, and now he's going to go after uh, Peter. Now, the Herods, their family, they had a history of opposing God's work, right? I already mentioned Herod the Great, who slew the infants of Bethlehem, who didn't want anything to do with this potential, possible Messiah being born there. Um, Herod Antipas, who was the one that reigned between Herod the Great and Herod the Agrippa I. Here, Herod Antipas is the one that beheaded John the Baptist, and the one that that mocked Christ during his his trials. And Herod Agrippa here is he has executed James, he's persecuting the church so the Herods, the whole family line, even though Herod the Great for political reasons had remodeled the temple and it was it was a dandy, all right? He did a magnificent, significant job, but it was motivated by politics. And so, by and large, with what God was actually doing, they have a history of opposing God. And so, with that in mind, we see that thread here through this chapter. Verse 4, it says, When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. That is, a squad is four, so that's 16 delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. This is around the time of Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, and Passover are all kind of around the the same time. Um, And what Luke is doing is he is building tension in this. You see, like, this is a significant real threat to, to God's, Man to God 's messenger to Peter, in that James has already been killed, and so this is already a realistic threat, but um, Herod has Peter arrested, and he surrounds him with sixteen soldiers to guard him and But because of the holiday, the holy days for for Israel, he can 't really do anything for a few days, and so he's kept under guard, under watch. Uh, in prison until that time. Okay, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. If you have a physical Bible this morning, and if you like to underline things, but earnest prayer for him was made is a good thing to underline. Because the, the whole passage is going to hinge on on this. Um, that Peter has been arrested, but there is a church there is a gathering of many people that are together, making intercessory prayer on behalf of Peter now intercessory prayer just means when we are when we go to God and we are interceding on behalf of someone else and intercessory prayer is part of god 's plan like we would mentioned the providence and the sovereignty of God, and all that can be um, overwhelming for us. Like, how does prayer fit into the providence of, of God? But we do know that God wants to be prayed to. It's part of His plan. It's part of His program. It's one of His divine prerogatives. And He works through prayer, the prayer of the saints. And so what they are doing is they are interceding for God's intervention. And so when we intercede for people, maybe it's interceding on their behalf for their health or for their their spiritual state. Maybe they don't know the Lord. But what we're doing is we're interceding, asking God for His intervention because we recognize that human means are very limited. And so we go to, to Him who has the king's heart in his hand and can sway it however he wants because he is the king of the universe and so when we come before god um, and we come before the high king of heaven we are coming before a king Uh, there's a good old king james word beseech I like that term for, for this context here. Beseeching a king, that you, you're, you're recognizing the position that he is, is, he is in. You're recognizing the position of humility, the circumstance that you're in. And so you are beseeching, you are humbly coming before a king. And so it is God's prerogative to be prayed to, to, uh, be put, to hear our petitions, to hear our appeals To him. But note here, as part of God's prayer, it's God's prerogative to answer prayer how he sees fit. No doubt these same people that praying for Peter also prayed for James. And what happened to to James? It was in the providence of God, it was in the will of God for James to be martyred at that time. Now we're going to see that God has a different plan for for Peter, but it is it is tough, right? Like God is is sovereign and we don't know God's mind, but we do know that he is wise, and we do know that he is loving, and that we can trust those things, that even when he is doing things or not doing things that, that we think he should, that he is is all wise and we are not. So God has the prerogative and he exercises it to answer our prayers how he sees fit. But it's not because he's a selfish God or he's got weaker plans than ours. He's perfectly competent. He's got an all-encompassing plan that is for our, our good. Now, approaching God, approaching an authority figure, approaching a king, there's this undertone in our, in Western society, in the Western world. Um, there's this undertone in, in western world thought of anything or anyone who is in power is going to be oppressive and so there's this suspicion that we might innately have of people that are in authority because if you're if you're like me the 37 years I've lived I've seen many cases of corruption in politics in businesses i mean i grew up during the 90s okay when bill clinton looked at the camera and lied to Okay? Um, but some of you grew up when, you know, during the, the Nixon resignation. And so, corruption, we're, we're used to that. And we're used to being cynical, um, suspicious of authority figures. And so, that might even affect, um, that might consciously or subconsciously uh, affect how we think about coming to an authority figure. We might resist humility before Him. But God exercises the, this prerogative and He has every right to. Because of His nature, because of His power, but also because of His competence. All of those things are true. And if it's, if it's beneath us, if it's beneath you to bow before God, if that is beneath you, the only things that are left is to delve into Spiritism or just pure humanism. I mean, that's really all, all, all we got left um, if, if you can't bow before the King of Heaven. So here we have this church that is um, obviously in, in great need, great concern over Peter. Now, in our context here in chapter 11 and into chapter 12, there's a contrast. You're, what we're going to see is we're going to see the church's care for one another. Uh, the Antiochian church is, is giving free of their free will to the church at Jerusalem. And then the, the concern that is seen in their prayers for, for the church. So the contrast is going to be the church with Herod, who was cold and calloused, and he sees that this, hey, I gained favor with the Jews by killing James. And so he's just using Peter as a political tool at, at this point. There's a callousness there. All right, so prayer is a divine prerogative of God. Secondly, in this passage, we see God's exercise of power as a divine prerogative. God's exercise of his power. Verse 6 says... Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Uh, Peter is as secured as possible. Maybe Herod is familiar with the story that happened years before where the apostles had been released from, from prison, when they were going to stand before the Sanhedrin the next morning, and instead of being in prison where they were supposed to be, they are out at the temple grounds proclaiming the risen Lord. Maybe Herod knew that, but this is a, he's, a, um, he's a valuable political tool. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, that is to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So God indeed answers the prayer of the church who is praying uh, so, and with so much concern for Peter. And uh, the way God chooses to answer here is by sending an angel. Now, remember, there is an angelic realm around us, even right now, that usually we are not aware of that is that we usually we do not sense the angelic realm that is around us but don't be fooled it is around us there are ministering spirits that serve almighty god and although we don't see them god uses those ministering spirits here in this case peter is allowed to actually see him but these angels can be quite powerful beings I mean, if we went back to to Kings and looked during the reign of Hezekiah, we would see the account of one angel, one of these angels, striking down 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And so, while God can speak and eliminate enemies, He sometimes chooses to use the means of angels who are quite powerful in and of themselves. So this angel comes and releases Peter. The it says that the chains fell off his hands, meaning his his wrists, the those atoms and and molecules that bound that iron together. And I'm no science, scientist, but those molecules and and are are disrupted and the chains fall off his wrists. And This isn't a nice little tap. The word here for uh, where it says that he struck Peter on the side, it's kind of a violent blow. Like, all right, come on, Peter, because Peter, he's worn out. Maybe he is sound asleep. Uh, He's in the middle of his rim cycle, and the angel strikes him quite quite hard and and wakes him up. Verse 8, it says, And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals and he did so and he said to him wrap your cloak around you and follow me I read this and I'm like it reminds me of another account in the gospels and I, and I think what's the deal with Peter always taking his clothes off all the time I mean this is the second time uh, John chapter 21 he's got his clothes off while he's He's out fishing, and then he recognizes it's the Lord, throws a cloak on, jumps into the water, goes, goes to the shore. So it makes me wonder if Peter, you know, is that, that, that dude that he's ripped, so he takes off his shirt to go running in 50-degree weather. Um, or is that friend that you had in high school, and you're like, dude, put your shirt on! But Peter has to take the time. Throw, throw his clothes on, his, shoe, his sandals, and they leave. Verse 9, and he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So the angel releases him from, get this, there are two, two soldiers, one on each side. There are sentries immediately outside of his cell. It's probably two more. There, they have to, the angel and Peter have to pass two additional guard posts. And then once they pass through all of that, there's this locked iron gate that stands between uh, the palace precinct, the jail precinct, and the rest of the city. And when they get to that iron gate, it becomes an automatic door. And at that point, once Peter had seen all of those things, he's convinced that this is actually happening. He's not still dreaming, um, but this is actually happening. Verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. When Peter came to himself... He said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So this is the same John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark um, and who is going to travel with Paul and Barnabas. On their their journey here in a little bit, but Peter goes to their house, and there happens to be this prayer meeting that is gathering. A law it says that many were gathered there, so this is a sizable house. This is a big prayer meeting that is happening in someone's home. Verse thirteen, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So someone's like. Luke is using a, the personal name here to say, hey, if you don't believe my account, you can go to Jerusalem and you can ask this Rhoda for yourself how all of this happened. Verse 14. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. The event is so shocking to her that she doesn't even stop to even open the door. She runs into the prayer meeting, disrupts the prayer meeting, and says, "Uh, Peter is standing at the door. Meanwhile, she runs in, and they're all talking back and forth, and Peter's just sitting there knocking at the door. Hello, you know, prisoner on the run here somebody and i'm sure several people have made the comment that peter had a harder time getting into the prayer meeting than he had getting out of the prison verse 15 they said to her you are out of your mind but she kept insisting that it was so and they kept and they kept saying it is his angel Uh, their immediate response to Peter's showing up is to suggest alternatives to the account. Now, I'm sure God didn't answer our prayer, so maybe maybe he's dead and it's his ghost. It, Here, the word is angel. It could mean that maybe they're thinking that he's already Gone on, and there's some kind of superstition. They're they're grasping at straws, looking for an alternative, trying to figure this out. Most likely, when they say it is his angel, that there was a a belief amongst Jews that of guardian angels, and it could look like it could resemble the people that they they watched over. It might be that, um, but we don't know. They're just grasping at anything other than. God answered our prayer because it's so shocking. It's so amazing to them. Verse 17, or verse 16, But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Verse 17, But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. We don't really know where he went, um, but we know that he left, right? Because he's an escaped prisoner, Uh, he's on the run, which there's a small principle here. Um, It's okay to escape martyrdom. (laughs) If you're under the threat of martyrdom, it's actually okay uh, to avoid that if you can um, verse, verse 18, it says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what became of Peter. Right, this is a big deal. This is an escapee, and according to the Code of Justinian, um, if a soldier allowed a prisoner to escape, one of the things that could happen was that they could be put to death. So this is a big deal. Roman soldiers were very good at their job, partially because there was a lot on the line. Verse 19. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That is, Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea. Um, When these sentries come before Herod, we have no idea. We don't have any information on how they actually responded to Herod, how they tried to rationalize this. We don't know if they ever saw the angel, if they ever saw the light, or if they were just knocked out unconscious. They wake up, and there are the shackles, but no, no Peter. Um, but we look at this account, and this is a remarkable story. We see many of these remarkable stories in the book of Acts. I mean, this is like Old Testament-type stuff. Right, I mean, the the, the stories, the accounts that we learn when we're kids about Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being preserved through the fire and Daniel being protected from the mouths of the the lions. This is that kind of of thing that God is vindicating the ministry of the apostles, but also the, the entire calling of the church showing that this, uh, to the Jews, once again, that God is working. This is God's work. This is not of man, and it is a reminder to us that God is a, nev- a never-changing God, that he has the same power today as he always has. So we, we read through Scripture, and we tend to have this idea that god was doing these miraculous things like on an every week basis in the old testament but we actually go decades and hundreds of years at times before seeing uh these these miracles and so don't get trapped in that I- that I- the idea just because you don't see god's supernatural activity in a miraculous way day in and day out that god is not working because most of the time in the old testament it was just day in day out type stuff but this is the same god that we serve the same god here that unlocked um, the prison door that that um that ushered escorted peter out of the prison house is the same god that we serve today the same god still unlocks locked doors So God exercises his divine prerogative, even with opposition. He, uh, we see prayer in this passage, we see his power, and lastly, we see his glory. Part of God's prerogatives is to defend, protect his own glory. He is very jealous of protecting who he really is, and honor. verse 20. We're not done with Herod. We're going to, this, uh, the account of Herod is going to be resolved for us. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. The people of Tyre and Sidon was, is, it was a region north of Israel. They were, um, they were merchants. They um, were well-known for traveling the seas and uh, carrying goods and everything from the, the seas and stuff. But at this point, they are, they're struggling. And part of their reliance, they have an economic reliance on, on Herod's people. But Herod, something has devolved in their relationship, and there's hostility. And it says that they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. And this is quite the burden on these people. Um, To be dependent on the state in any scenario is a burden for us. Um, And whenever we can avoid that, it's probably good. It's probably a good thing. But here, there's an even heavier burden of, in those days, all the corruption that were around all of these officials... Um, to the point that they have to bribe. That's probably what's going on here with the king's chamberlain, the king's servant, Blasus. They somehow get a bribe to him in order to get an ear with, with the king. Verse 21, it says, And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, there is a historian named Josephus who actually records this event as well he He describes this event like this on the second day of which shows he put on of, of which shows he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the f- the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a god. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So one of the things to note that harmonizes with what Luke is talking about here is that he, he put on his fancy clothes, all right? He dressed to impress. And that when he, come, he came out to the bima, to the throne seat, in front of the people, it, the sun is reflecting off of the silver that he is wearing on his kingly royal garments. Verse 22, And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, this is probably not very serious on their part. What are they doing? They are brown-nosing, right? They're trying to make him feel good about himself. And, but he, he likes it. He is taking this, this in. Don't tamper with what uniquely belongs to God. Plenty of people throughout history have done so. And it seems like they have gotten away with it for a time. They even die a natural death at times. But that's not the end of the story. Never, ever tamper with what belongs to God. which also means the things that we can exercise in our, own, uh, in our own persons that reflect things that are true about him, like holiness, righteous, justice. We should reflect those in ways that are accurate to how God gives off those things. So never tamper with what uniquely belongs to God like Herod does here. Now, we may not do it so brazenly like Herod, For us, it may take the form of trying to take God's place in the life of a significant other. Trying to be all things to a spouse, or especially if you're younger, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you're working through those emotions, and you want to be everything for that person. You can't be God. You can't fulfill everything, uh, every need that they have in their, their life. Parents, we can't be our our kids' saviors. We have to recognize, yes, we love our kids. We express that and show that the best that we can, but we can't do everything for them. We can't save them out of every little jam or every little learning experience. Sometimes, to do so, they become dependent on us and not dependent on the one that they're supposed to be dependent on, which is God verse 23. After Herod has the audacity to do this, and it's probably not the first time, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod is struck down as as easy as a piece of machinery would cut down a stalk of corn. And there's a contrast here. There's an irony that this whole Herod versus God thing that's going on in this passage, uh, who was the true king? Herod steps out in this kingly regalia, and he is struck down in it. Usually, people take their last breath and then are later eaten up by worms. But here, Herod, it's vice versa. We don't know the the technical medical thing that is going on here, but there is some kind of parasitic thing that is going on in his stomach. Josephus, again, mentions some things, talking about this event, He said a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days. He departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age. You may not have picked up on this, but everyone in this passage that is opposing God and opposing the church, God's work, gets executed. The soldiers, Herod, lots and plenty of human arrogance going around here. But verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop God's word. That is, what, that is why Luke records this story, that even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of persecution, and folks trying to shut this down, the gospel is so powerful, it cannot be stopped. Not by human means, not by the spirit world. The word of God increased and multiplied. Now, we read through the pages of Scripture and we know our experiences and we know human history that there is a struggle between the saints and the devil, the, e- the evil one. And you see this struggle even all the way th- through the book of Revelation. But let this be very clear. There may be a Satan versus saint struggle, but there is no God versus Satan struggle. Yes, we understand that Satan is the enemy. He is trying to accomplish his own things. But everything that Satan does, God in his power, in his wisdom, his providence, in his glory, he allows. Nothing that Satan has ever done or ever will do is because he caught God off guard. Nothing stops God And God exercises His divine prerogatives. In this passage of Scripture, we see that unrighteous rulers cannot stop the gospel. But we also see that men and women who usurp God and God's place will be judged. Nothing stops the gospel. There's the the old story of Voltaire, who was a philosopher, he was a deist, but he didn't think that God was really involved in in this world. And uh, he even made the statement, um, in a hundred years, nobody's going to be a Christian. Christianity won't even be around. And the ironic thing, and it appears that the story is true, that 50 years later in his own home, uh, his own home becomes a storage building for Bibles, and and where christian material was printed off by his own presses nothing stops god human figures come and go they're buried they're burned whatever but the gospel stays and the power of our god keeps accomplishing what he wants and God exercises his divine prerogatives. What are his divine prerogatives? How do we get involved in what God is doing? Well, these things are a concern to him. Prayer, his power, and ultimately his glory. All right. Bow your heads and close your eyes. The worship team is going to come forward. What a privilege it is to be, um, to worship God. That's that's an awesome privilege. It's an awesome privilege to do that with one another. Um, but it's also an awesome privilege to be a part of God's work yourself. Like, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're all part of God's sovereign plan in some way. But that doesn't mean we're all His Children, spiritually speaking. Yes, he, he created and we're all accountable to Him, but that doesn't mean that you have a right relationship with this God. When I say right relationship, maybe it's because you're, you've never come to Christ. You've never em, acknowledged your need for a Savior. Recognize that you're a sinner and embrace Christ and his work on the cross to save you. We urge you to do that this morning. We would there's nothing that we would love more than to be able to talk with you about that and help guide you in how you can talk with God and and get that settled in your heart. If you're here this morning we'd love to talk with you about that. If you're here this morning and you're you profess to know the Lord but something is off and Really, only you and the Holy Spirit know that. And there's something that you need to get right to restore fellowship with God. I mean, you know maybe you're not going to lose that relationship with God, but the intimacy of that is completely messed up because of decisions you're making. And you need to confess that sin and just lay that before Him so your fellowship with Him can be restored. Whatever is going on in your life, we make a simple invitation this morning that we would love to pray with you if there's anything that we can talk with you about or anything this morning. When we stand up here in just a moment and the worship team starts leading us in a song, you can just walk this way and we would love to, to talk with you about whatever is going on in your life. But we urge you not to put it off, to do business with however God is, is working in your heart and your life this morning. So with that in mind and this, and this, this open invitation here to, to use this place as a place of prayer, to pray with to God, pray with God's people, um, would you go ahead and stand to your feet? Everybody, stand to your feet if you're able. The worship team is going to lead us, and we're, we're here if we can help in any way possible. But As the Lord is working and doing business in your heart, uh, just follow his, his leading today.